Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Nearly 200 countries are endorsing a new climate agreement to limit emissions, which is big. But what's not included in the deal might be just as important as what is. Negotiators were aiming to get enough promises to get a 1.5 degree limit on warming. And what they came out with was a set of plans that will get us to 1.8 degrees. So we're already not where we need to be. That's Lorraine Wollert, Politico's sustainability editor. She and her team have been digging into what the deal from the COP26 summit does do. Countries have agreed, most of them, to reduce their emissions. It's that simple. And what it doesn't do. If somebody falls short, there's no sort of serious consequence, right? Other than global warming will continue unchecked. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, Lorraine Woolert on the winners and losers of COP26. So there's this new deal that, as you mentioned, puts countries on track to limit global warming to 1.8 degrees, which is a letdown for those calling for 1.5 degrees. Another letdown, as we've reported at Politico, is many of the world's most vulnerable countries are upset that India and China pushed for language to be changed in the agreement at the last minute from phasing out coal to phasing down coal. When you consider all of this, who would you say are the winners of this summit? Well, two of the big winners are China and India. They bullied their way into getting language to protect coal production in their countries. Now, I have some sympathy for China and India. Uh, you know, it's, it's much harder for them to make a transition to a green economy than it is for more developed nations like the U.S. and Europe. But they were able to protect themselves in a pinch in these negotiations at the expense of a lot of other people like the, the smaller economies. So they're, they're big winners. Mm. What about the losers? <laughs> Everybody but China and India, right? I mean, uh, you know, President Alex Sharma, who is the EU negotiator um, in this space, like he was near tears on Saturday. I mean, it was it was very painful what happened on the last day uh, where, you know, we thought we were going to get um, a phase out of coal like written into the agreement. And China and India said, no, we want a phase down of coal. Right. So, I mean, it sounds ridiculously silly, you know, but those semantics do matter in these type of types of diplomatic talks. So everyone but China and India lost on coal. I want to go back to that 1.8 degrees Celsius warming number that was agreed to and how it falls short of the 1.5 goal, which in some ways sounds minuscule to me. But when you do consider the fate of the world being at stake, how much of a fail is that? It's a big fail. Um, but we also knew going in that this was going to be a really heavy lift. Um, and there was a lot of pessimism going into these talks. So, you know, in a lot of ways, this really isn't surprising that we didn't get to 1.5. There were some agreements, sort of side agreements, that are going to be very significant. Um, there was a deal uh, to slash methane. More than 100 countries signed that. Um, it's not binding, but it is a strong signal. It's progress. You know, there are new rules on carbon trading, which will help us move the ball forward. So... 
it's a disappointment. Um, I would say, though, it's not a surprise that we didn't get to 1.5. What does not hitting that goal number ultimately mean in real world effects? Because sticking with certain places being winners and losers here, there are countries that'll feel the effects of things like this before others, right? Right. So, you know, the low-lying countries that we've all heard about, like Pacific nations, like Tuvalu and Kiribati, are high risk. These countries may not exist in, you know, 100 years. Um, But there's other um, emerging countries that are also, you know, seriously impacted. And most of these countries are, are, frankly, poorer nations that don't have the wherewithal of the United States and other large economies. So um, these these emerging markets weren't well represented at the talks for a lot of reasons, and they're the ones that are going to get hurt the most by any shortcomings in the deal. When you think about the optics and the diplomatic end of this summit, how was the summit for the U.S. overall? Because a lot of attention was paid heading into it to the Biden administration's role, given the fact that Trump pulled out of the landmark Paris Climate Accord. The White House's message has kind of been that the U.S. is back as a global climate leader, led in many ways by John Kerry, whose face I saw on on magazines a lot before COP26. Did the U.S. live up to the hype here? Well, I mean, yes. John Kerry was at the center of all of these negotiations. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, because the U.S. was there, more I think more progress. It's very easy to argue that more progress was made than otherwise would have happened. I mean, if you don't have one of the world's largest polluters in the room, how do you reach any kind of meaningful deal? So yes, it was a very big deal that the U.S. was back. Um, you know, there's some question as to whether you know we regained our moral high ground in this space, given the last four years. But uh, I don't think you can question the role that the U.S. played in these talks. So broadly speaking, big pledges were made at this summit, though, as we've talked about, not as big as some might have hoped, um, some, you know, missed opportunities, but big nonetheless. Tomorrow, Politico is going to be hosting the inaugural sustainability summit where you'll be serving as a moderator. The summit's going to look at how pledges like the ones made over the weekend at COP26, how they turn into action and what's next. And I'll be tuning in to get an answer to this question tomorrow. But I do want to ask you now, I mean, how do you turn pledges like this into action? Like what is the U.S. or another big country or small country agreeing to only warming the planet by X number of degrees. What does that mean for domestic policy and the lives of everyday people? Well, it it depends on the country. You know, we all know that President Joe Biden has made promises for the U.S. to do its part, but he does need the help of Congress, for example, um, to pass legislation so that we can do things like roll out more use of electric vehicles and clean our electric grid, reduce our coal and fossil fuel use. So the U.S. is just one example, right? We have to to meet our pledges. We have to get all this work done. In other countries, it's the same thing. Uh-huh. For us, it means that we're going to see a transition away from fossil fuels. And so depending on where you live, it could be dramatic. I mean, The reason Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia has been a thorn in the side of Democrats on some of um, this climate legislation is because his economy will, you know, take the short term hit. 
if we phase out coal, you know? So um, depending on where you live in the U.S., you could see jobs disappear. Or you could see new jobs crop up. Biden wants to clean the electrical grid. We want to um, really push production of clean vehicles, electric vehicles. We're already seeing Ford and other companies building factories in the U.S. to produce these cars. So a lot of new jobs are getting created. Some old jobs are going to go away. In terms of our everyday living, some things might get more expensive in the near term. I think, you know, as we start to like build houses that are greener, you know, that use um, different types of materials, have more efficiency, energy efficiency, you know, that's going to cost more, right? So there's going to be a price built into this transition. And then you're going to start to see companies, you know, many of them have already made pledges to get to net zero, meaning they won't actually be producing any carbon or they'll be offsetting the carbon that they do produce, right? Uh, For them to do that, they have to spend money too, right? So there could be in the near term a little inflationary effect from the transition. But in the long term, as we get you know further into a green energy, things could get cheaper. I mean, this you know, sun and wind are a lot cheaper than drilling for gas and oil. And it's cheaper to to in the long run to drive an electric car than a, a internal combustion engine vehicle. So Near term, possibly a little inflation. Long term, we should see things getting cheaper, possibly. Lorraine Wollert, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Happy to do it. Lorraine Wollert is Politico's sustainability editor. Be sure to tune in to our sustainability summit tomorrow at 9.40 a.m. Eastern. You can find that at politico.com slash events or find a link in this episode's show notes. Also today, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says it's unclear whether inflation will stabilize by next year's November midterms, tying the economy's fate to the state of the pandemic. Speaking to CBS over the weekend, Yellen said, quote, the pandemic has been calling the shots for the economy and for inflation, noting that the labor force is down and demand patterns have changed. She acknowledged that Americans are seeing big increases in prices for everyday essentials like gasoline and groceries and argued that the spikes will ease as the economy recovers from COVID. And... Representative Adam Schiff says the Justice Department's move to charge Steve Bannon with contempt of Congress will sway others to cooperate with the January 6th Select Committee's subpoenas. Schiff, who's one of nine members on the committee, told me the press, quote, now that witnesses see that if they don't cooperate, if they don't fulfill their lawful duty when subpoenaed, that they too may be prosecuted, it'll have a very strong focusing effect on their decision making. The DOJ charged Bannon, a former top advisor to former President Trump, with two counts of contempt of Congress on Friday. The House referred Bannon to the Department for Prosecution last month after he refused to provide documents and testimony to investigators looking into the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to subscribe to the show if you haven't yet, and check out some of our other podcasts like The Playbook Daily Briefing and Politico Energy. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.